Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast featuring live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today, we will hear from Michael Tomaski, special correspondent for the Daily Beast, who stopped by the NCC to sit down with Jeffrey Rosen and discuss his new book, If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. Tomaski spoke to a sold-out crowd about the unique history of American political parties, the rise of polarization and its negative effects on government, and possible solutions for healing the divides we face today. Here's Jeff to get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thanks thanks to you all. What a great crowd. It is a great crowd. Let's we're, go. We're, let's go. Let's uh, come let us reason together, as Brandeis <laughs> said. Uh, you argue in this superb book that political polarization is not new. Indeed, it dates back to the time of the founding when the delegates to the convention clashed over the status of slavery. And you note that the great compromise over slavery passed by a single vote. Yes. And yet you say that something important has changed, which is that the parties, which arose in 1800, used to be cross-partisan. There were anti and pro-slavery Whigs. There were uh, anti and pro-bank Democratic Republicans. But around the 1960s, you say, the parties began to be much more ideologically homogenous, and now we have red and blue America that is more ideologically sorted uh, than at any time since the Civil War. Let's unpack all of those important points. Take Mm -hmm. us back to the time of the founding. Describe the status of political polarization in the Constitutional Convention and how the founders dealt with it. Sure. Um, Well, we were polarized at the beginning over essentially the same question that we're polarized over now. I mean, we're polarized over a lot of questions right now, but the central question is the size and scope and power of the federal government. That's what Democrats and Republicans fight about today. That's what Federalists and Anti-Federalists fought about at the time of the Constitutional Convention and the question of whether or not to ratify uh, the convention. The Federalist Papers, as I'm sure all of you know, uh, were uh, papers that were written by the Federalists to persuade New Yorkers and others uh, to vote for ratification. And at the same time, there were Anti-Federalists who were agitating in their pamphlets uh, against ratification. And, uh, you know, they didn't have to use their real names. It was sort of like Twitter. Uh, And and they could be uh, brutal. This this guy Brutus was particularly brutal in some of his writings. Uh, So the division is very old. Then when the Republic is formed, we have uh, the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, and their debates are so similar to the debates that we see today. The Hamiltonians, of course, were the city slickers, the swells, the coastal elites. The Jeffersonians were the backwoods people, the yeoman farmers, to use the often used phrase. Uh, And the Hamiltonians uh, wanted a big, powerful federal government. uh, And uh, the Jeffersonians were suspicious of this, and they wanted no powers of taxation uh, uh, looming over them from, well, what was then Philadelphia what became Washington. Uh, Now, to cover a lot of history pretty quickly and then we can double back on whatever Jeff wants to double back on. But as Jeff said, the thing about our parties, the unusual thing about our parties was that they were ideologically homogeneous, no, heterogeneous. They They were hodgepodges. They didn't really make any coherent sense. This was quite in contrast to the parties of Europe. As the countries of Europe began to throw off monarchy and become democratic republics in the 19th century, they formed political parties too, uh, after we had formed ours. Uh, But their political parties were, you know, logical. They had a party of the left and a party of the right. You know, England had the Liberal Party. Labor came later, of course, in the 1920s. But they had the, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. Uh, and uh, other countries had Christian Democrats versus Social Democrats. Uh, some parties had more, some countries had more than two parties, of course, because they had different kinds of systems. But basically, two large parties, one of the right, one of the left. The United States of America never really had that because in the first instance of slavery and 
uh, founders and the leaders of the next generation or two decided that rather than make slavery the political issue that they just wanted to paper over it because they knew that dealing with it would be a crisis and would lead to what it indeed led to by the time we got to 1861. So Martin Van Buren is a very pivotal figure in this history. You may not have given him much thought, but he is a very pivotal figure in this history. He's actually the real father of the Democratic Party. After the 1824 election, Van Buren decided that he wanted to, um, uh, to form a new national political party uniting, in his phrase, the planters of the South with the plain Republicans of the North. Uh, and uh, so, so he wanted to do a national party that would, in the 1828 election, get behind Andrew Jackson and hope that Jackson would win the presidency. That's the birth of the modern Democratic Party, but it was notably not about slavery. Uh, so the party had pro-slavery forces and anti-slavery forces. The Whig Party had pro-slavery forces and anti-slavery forces. Go on through history, and the parties continue to be these strange amalgams that didn't really make any ideological sense. So the Republican Party of the late 19th century, by the time of the Industrial Revolution, the Republican Party chose sides in that Industrial Revolution and was the party of the capitalists. But as the country grew, and this is another important factor here, that we had a country that grew, that added states, that added population, that added different political interests, which was made us, made us very different from the countries of Europe because you know, France was France in 1789, but we kept growing. So the Republican Party was the party of Wall Street and the party of the old abolitionists in the Great Lakes and up through uh, uh, upstate New York and into New England, and the party of agrarian populists. It didn't really make any sense. The Democratic Party, the same thing. The upside of all this, though, and I'll finish in a second, the upside of all this was that there was a lot of crossover. There was a subset in the middle where there were Democrats and Republicans bunched together, you see. And the, so this made compromise in the era of compromise. I don't want to make any assumptions about this audience, but I can see that some of you were alive then. <laughs> <laughs> All of us were alive then. <laughs> I was many too. Of us, many of us still live then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, don't, don't I, every day. No, no I, I was alive too. I was just a kid being told this by my dad. Um, but that's what made, for the era of compromise that many of us grew up in, that's what made it possible. There was this overlap in the parties. And so if you look at, for example, the roll call vote in Congress in 1965 on Medicare, uh, nearly half of Republicans voted for Medicare in 1965, nearly half. Now, the right wing existed, you know, hard right conservatives existed then, and they called it socialized medicine, and they were against it. Uh, and in fact, Ronald Reagan made a spoken word record album against, against the Medicare bill. Uh, <clears throat> but they were only part of the Republican Party then. And another part of the Republican Party came from these traditions that I discussed earlier. Uh, so anyway, there was overlap. And then, starting in the 60s with civil rights and heading into abortion, women's rights, gay rights, immigration, and economic stress, the parties hardened into two separate entities. And so we have no longer do we have any intra-party polar, well, we have some, but not like we did in the historical sense. That is a superb uh, synthesis of the argument, and you've taken us to the point in the 60s when there was a 50% overlap in Congress between the most conservative Democrats and the most liberal Republicans to today when there is no overlap. Right. But let's go back to the 19th century on a few points before we try to figure out how things changed. Uh, Larry Kramer, the constitutional scholar, uh, is also a big Van Buren fan. Yeah. And he says Van Buren's insight in creating the modern party was to organize it around constitutional ideals, namely that of states' rights and constrained federal government. Mm -hmm. And he says for most of American history, the parties were defined by their allegiance to Jeffersonian or Hamiltonian ideals, and that gave it a constitutional coherence that allowed the cross-cutting political uh, exchanges to take place. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And Van Buren, uh, <coughs> Van Buren was, a, was a, a, a unique and different character. He was, uh, uh, by all accounts that I read, he was a very suave, 
polished gentleman. He, he's, uh, I wrote that um, if he were alive today, he's the kind of senator who'd be on Morning Joe twice a week. Uh, he, he's, he was very smooth. He, he would have been welcome at Georgetown parties and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but he also, he stood out from the generation before him, certainly, in the sense that, as you'll recall, the, the Founding Fathers didn't want political parties. Washington, Jefferson, everybody warned against them. But Van Buren said, no, no, political parties are, are worthy associations where, you know, men, you know, he said men, of course, excuse me, men have differences of the highest character that were indeed about constitutional interpretation uh, in, in the first instance. And uh, we need associations uh, to reflect uh, these differences and, and to carry out the debate over them. And so he was a, a very important figure. And he was also the first, I'd say, Jeff, to, um, uh, to express for the populace the idea that politics was a participatory ritual and was something that should be fun and that people could be involved in. It was a very different thing in those days. You, you know, and I'm sure many of you know, presidential can candidates didn't campaign back then. They didn't even campaign really until Woodrow Wilson. So what was there for a citizen to do? Some things at the local level, but not much to give the citizen a sense of a national identity. And so I think that National Democratic Party that Van Buren created was the first party that gave citizens a kind of national identity. And now let's talk about some of the structural decisions that Congress made that are so important today. One big one occurred in 1842 with the law that mandated single member districts. And mm -hmm. you said before that some states had uh, ticket voting and others had single member districts and that has huge consequences for uh, polarization. Tell us about that choice. Yes. <clears throat> They didn't put anything in the Constitution about how we were to elect Congress. They said simply that, you know, it will be up to the states. Uh, and there were a lot of decisions like that, of course, that they left to the states. Now, <clears throat> most states decided to use single-member districts uh, simply because that's basically what had existed in most places. The House of Burgesses, for example, was a single-member district uh, legislature. Uh, but every state didn't. Uh, some states used what, what they then called general ticket voting, which meant you know, the Federalists put forward this slate and the Democratic Republicans put forward this slate, and whoever won, won the congressional seats in the state. Some states went kind of violently back and forth in the early days. This state, notably, Pennsylvania, uh, used single-member districts for the first Congress, then for the second one they switched to general ticket voting, then the third one they switched back, and the fourth one they switched back, because there was this big wrestling match even then between you know, the moneyed interests in Philadelphia and the rest of the state. And the rest of the state is really big, right? And in, in those days especially, it was like a massive place, and Pittsburgh was a million miles away. Um, so <clears throat> this went back and forth until 1842, and finally Congress decided, and this was mostly a Whig reform, the Whigs were in power then. Uh, you'll remember that William Henry Harrison won in 1840. He beat Van Buren, in fact, but then he died, and then John Tyler became the president, and John Tyler wasn't really much of a Whig. Why he was Harrison's vice presidential candidate, nobody really knows, but he was, and, and he became a Whig, and he, just, he had these huge fights with the congressional Whig party and uh, you know he vetoed a bank bill uh, they ran on the bank bill and they had both houses of Congress imagine this happening today imagine cable news how it would explode they had both houses of Congress they passed a bank bill Tyler their president vetoed it they listened to his objections they went back and passed another one he vetoed it again <laughs> And so then, you know, without going into all the details of, of how this Reapportionment Act came sorry, about. Sorry, why did he veto it? I have to ask. Uh, you know, it's in the book. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay. I read it, too, so it's my, yeah. my fault as well. <laughs> Another reason to buy it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to reread it. But uh, he, uh, they, they finally passed a reapportionment bill that mandated single-member districts, uh, but then some states didn't obey it, mostly southern states. 
uh, and this is a very complicated thing that I don't know if I can describe shortly, but of course it had to do with slavery and, and votes in Congress over slavery questions. Uh, that the South thought that if they could vote with one voice, uh, they would they would be stronger and represent their number more more um, more solidly. Uh, then we went back and forth on single member districts versus general ticket voting for a number of years, and it, 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 general ticket or at large voting wasn't actually made uh, against the law until the late 1960s. Hawaii had at large congressional districts until 1970. I say at the end of the book that I think it would be a good idea if we went back to some of this at-large or multi-member voting. I think it would, it could reduce polarization around the edges. You know, it's not going to fix anything, but I think it, I think it could reduce it around the edges if we elected some members of the House of Representatives from either larger multi-member districts. Say you had three of them in Pennsylvania, one from the eastern part of the state, one from the central part of the state, and one from the western part of the state. They couldn't be as aggressively gerrymandered as individual single-member districts could be. And they might, might make for the election of somewhat more moderate uh, representatives. So that's the extent to which single-member districts uh, have uh, uh, made Jerry or have made polarization a little worse than it might be. Another of your proposed reforms at the end, and one of the many virtues of this book is that the reforms are concrete and plausible, is expand the, the size of the House of Representatives. And you tie that to a very important constitutional point. Friends, you know that the first amendment proposed in the original Bill of Rights was not the free speech amendment, but one that would have required one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. Michael does the math and shows that if that had passed, there would be about 9,000 people in Congress <laughs> today. You can see the original amendment in the original Bill of Rights outside there. But Michael, tell us that history. What was the debate over what the proper size of Congress should be? How did they settle on the number they settled on? And why do you think it would be helpful to modestly expand the size of the House today? They settled on the number they settled on in a pretty reasonable, orderly fashion. Everything they did in the building down the way wasn't doesn't quite fit that description, but, but this does. And they tossed some different numbers around and, and they finally agreed on, I think, they changed it either from 40,000 to 30,000 on the last day or from 30,000 to 40,000. I think it was 40 to 30 on the very last day. And you know, this one guy from Massachusetts was insistent on it and everybody else was like, I just want to get home, okay. Um, but they did, of course, include the provision that we would have a census every 10 years and that when that census was done, uh, the number of districts uh, would grow. And, uh, and this duly happened. Censuses were performed every 10 years, and the size of the House of Representatives grew every 10 years. Uh, but something didn't happen. They weren't drawn fairly at all. And over the course of the 19th century, what happened was, to put it simply and bluntly, that cities got screwed. And uh, state legislatures, which mostly were not in cities, right? Because this is another compromise that dates to the early days of our republic. State capitals weren't the big cities. State capitals were chosen, they were central cities like Harrisburg that people could get to from this end of the state and the other end of the state. I and mean, think about them all. Hartford, Connecticut, Trenton, New Jersey, Columbia, South Carolina. They're all in the middle of the state. In fact, in, in France, they went so far when they had the revolution and they did away with the old provinces of the Ancien Regime and made the new departments. They made them really small and they had a rule that the capital of the département could be no more than one carriage, one day's carriage right away from any point in that department. Uh, so that too was another compromise and another factor uh, <coughs> that you know, just the, the question of size. They debated the size of the states and the population and how that was going to work out. It's really interesting to burrow into all these things. But, um, but basically, what, now what was your question? <laughs> why, why should the house be bigger now? Yeah, right, right, right. Thank you. Yeah, I got <laughs> Which is your, I, I your number little, four proposal. Yes, right, yes. <laughs> Good old number four. Absolutely. Um, sorry, I, I got so interested in my little... Uh, <laughs> It is fascinating. Digression there. Yeah. But yes, so, so here's the thing. All, this, all the suggestions at the end 
are about things that might make polarization a little bit more manageable. So I say that as long as we could elect people in a different way, if we could use these multi-member districts or at-large uh, uh, election, then it would be worth expanding the size of the House of Representatives because I think that if we did it that way, and, and in other words, they weren't being elected from single-member districts that could be so aggressively gerrymandered, it might bring more moderates into the House. Um, you know, none of these things are, 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 um, are uh, silver bullets, folks. I mean, this is, this is a big problem and that's been a long time in the making and it, nothing's gonna fix it in five years. But I do think that if we had a larger House of Representatives and they were elected in a different way, we might get more moderate members. And also, just to finally, just to emphasize Jeff's point in his question, yeah, they're too big. They represent 750,000 people now. That's too much. That's not what the founders wanted. That's not what, you know, Montesquieu was the great uh, intellectual leader on this. And of course, they all read Montesquieu, that a republic should be contained in small units and so forth. I'm sure he would have thought that the United States was you know, an insane idea at the size it is today. But at the very least, districts ought to be smaller. If you look at countries that elect their representatives like we elect ours, in the UK, an MP represents about 160,000 people. In France, a member of the assembly represents about 120,000 people. We couldn't go that small, but you know, we could, we, I don't know. They should, be, they should be smaller than they are. Um, let's put on the table some of the other reforms because they're so important. Uh, there is end partisan gerrymandering and eliminate the Senate filibuster and get rid of the Electoral College uh, for the political reforms before we talk about civic education. Okay, <laughs> on a nonpartisan basis, friends. Um, uh, tell us first about the Senate filibuster and then about the Electoral uh, College and the, uh, and the other reforms. Yeah. Well, uh, the Senate filibuster, a lot of people disagree with me because, you know, they say, well, you know, if this side or that side gets 51, then, you know, they'll do whatever crazy things they're inclined to do. Um, but I say, fine, that's democracy. You know, the, the, the 51's a majority of 100 the last time I looked. Now, the Senate is a problematic body in other ways, and we can talk about that. And, uh, Changing the Senate is not one of my 14 points because I don't, there's, I don't know that there's any way to change that. There's, you could have a constitutional convention or you can have an amendment. That, but there's even a provision in the Constitution, of course, that says the Senate cannot be changed. <laughs> so, right? So you'd have to, people talk about how you could get around that. But assuming that we have the Senate that we have for the foreseeable future, I, I don't, I, the, I've read a lot of stuff from the founders, let me just put it that way, where they say you, giving the minority a negative over the majority is a disaster. It, it, it makes the minority essentially the majority. And that is exactly what happens in the Senate today. 41 people who decide to block something on a cloture vote, you all know what a cloture vote is. Uh, 41 people, um, are the effective majority. Um, it's not democratic. And, you know, of course, cloture votes aren't in the Constitution and filibusters aren't in the Constitution. These things grew up as traditions over time and filibusters weren't even used very much until the modern era, until the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and now uh, threats of filibusters are used all the time. And, debate just ends, and it's one of the big reasons that there's such gridlock in the Senate. So it does mean, what I'm saying does mean that, you know, say, until this January, Donald Trump and the Republicans in the House and Senate could have passed all kinds of things that I personally might not, you know, favor. But it also means that when, you know, the other side gets in and has their majorities, they can undo them and pass their things. I think that's more democratic. But the title of the book is A Republic, if you can keep yeah. it, and you quote Benjamin Franklin to Mrs. Powell, Mrs. Powell, what have you created, Dr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin, a republic 
Madam, if you can keep it, suddenly that becomes not a platitude, but a central, the most urgent question of our time. But the point is, as you stress, that the founders did not create a direct democracy, but a representative republic that would slow down deliberation so we could be guided by reason rather than passion. So how would eliminating the filibuster decrease polarization, and does the filibuster arguably increase deliberation or not? You know, it's a great question. I'm not sure, really, if it decreases polarization, but it increases the functionality of the republic. I mean, I do think, you know, I, what do I know what the founders would think? But I think if they could come and look, I think they would say, it's too broken, something bad has happened. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know that, I mean, Madison and Hamilton and others were specifically against uh, this idea of the minority having the, the power of an effective majority. Um, so I think they would look at something like the rise of, of filibusters and cloture votes, uh, which again, happened very rarely, very rarely. I mean, the, the only things that were filibustered in the 40s and 50s were civil rights bills. They, they didn't do it otherwise. Now, the, the cloture hurdle was higher then. It was 67 votes, not 60, but it, but it passed routinely. It was even 67 votes at the time of the civil rights bill in 1964, but 67 members, a combination of Democrats and Republicans, again, because there was that overlap voted for cloture in 1964. So I guess I would say to you, Jeff, that they wouldn't have anticipated and they wouldn't have liked uh, this incessant, incessant demand on cloture. And there is no doubt that the filibuster, as you say, has dramatically increased in its use since the 80s in ways that it had never been used before. Right. You have two suggestions that are dear to my heart and I know will resonate with our Constitution Center audience increasing civic education and increasing exchanges among citizens and students of different perspectives. I'll tell you, this is your first visit, our audience knows about our transformatively exciting civic education efforts, including the Interactive Constitution, which friends, I'm delighted to share with you, is going to be upgraded on September 17th, Constitution Day, uh, so that it includes not only the top liberal and conservative scholars discussing every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree and disagree about, but videos with Supreme Court Justices Gorsuch and Kagan, the ability to explore the evolving text of each constitutional provision over time, and most excitingly, constitutional exchanges that will unite classrooms in Philadelphia with those in California or Kentucky and Michigan to discuss constitutional wow. issues moderated by a judge. It oh, is a wow. thrilling platform. The College Board is going to bring it out to all three to five million AP students. And our goal, working with you, is to bring in tens of thousands of students from the Philadelphia area, including working with Dr. Height, uh, who's endorsed this project to bring in tens of thousands of Philly public high school students to experience this material and make them constitutional ambassadors so they can connect with classrooms around the country to model the kind of uh, civic cross-partisan exchanges you're talking about. Um, so it's very exciting stuff. Fabulous. I'm happy to share it with you. Why did the founders think and why do you think that civic education in general and in particular education about the Constitution in particular is so important to save the republic? Well, because a citizen, you know, is, is uh, as they thought and as I think and you think and all of you think, a citizen is not, you know, just some schlub who, you know, watches TV. A citizen, a citizen has to participate. Uh, democracy needs citizens to be active participants to, to engage. And let's not be unrealistic. I mean, everybody's not going to be like that. Uh, but we need a critical mass of, of people to be like that. And today, in our world and our country, we need even more. We need to get reacquainted with each other again. Uh, I, I know you all know of books like Bill Bishop's The Big Sort and a, a lot of other social science that has shown that we're, we're clustering more and more with like-minded people. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, we're just, a lot of us don't even know people anymore who have different politics. You know, maybe a cousin or something, but um, it's, it's gotten to a point where we're, we're, we're strangers to one another. So 
the idea, one of the ideas that I, that I put in there that Jeff referenced was some, why don't we have exchanges uh, um, uh, among public university students, you can't make private schools do anything, but maybe they'll emulate it, um, <clears throat> where students from a very blue state go spend a year in a very red state, and vice, and vice versa. Uh, you know, I, people will call this, some people will call this utopian or pie in the sky or whatever. Well, maybe, but I don't know. You know, we did something like this before. You know, we had. We set up a, a, a huge network of international uh, student exchange programs in the 1940s and 50s when we felt it was important to do so, when the world was shrinking and you know, the United Nations was formed and we felt it was important to foster cultural understanding. We set up exchange programs. Well, we need cultural understanding today between Massachusetts and Mississippi, too. You know? uh, so let's do that. Let's, let's try that. And, and uh, uh, this also raises another point that I'd like to make. In the sections of the book where I talk about the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and this era of consensus, the reading I did for that section made it very clear to me that that consensus, it didn't just happen. It was forged by a bunch of different groups of people. It was forged by corporate leaders. It was forged by labor leaders. It was forged by religious leaders and civic leaders and university presidents. I mean, they were a really important part of, of creating a civic consensus. Uh, so university presidents, do it again today. Uh, now, as for civic education, it's, it, it's just terrible. It's not what it should be in this country. Uh, I spoke to uh, a few experts on the topic while I was working on the book. Kids get a year or two. I think they should get 12. I don't see any reason why. Yeah, we're in a crisis. This is an emergency. <laughs> this is an emergency. Everybody's forgetting you know, what, what we have here. Uh, we need 12 years of civic education. You know, they can cut back on a little bit on something. Uh, so that's, yeah, thanks, yes. Here, here, beautifully said, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you say it so powerfully, and the idea of the university exchanges is fresh and compelling, and I would love to talk further with you about how we can start by using these virtual exchanges to pilot yeah. it, because all you have to do is sign up online, Great. and then maybe bring it to uh, colleges around the country. I jumped because uh, it was so, because uh, I wanted to, to the solutions, but we should take a beat at least on what on earth happened starting in the 19. 60s, you say that the first fissure was over race, which led to the ideological sorting of the parties, but then included things like the, uh, the, the, the sexual revolution and the fights over religion. How did we move from a world where the parties were cross-partisan to those where they were ideologically sorted? Uh, because these things had never been issues before, right? Harry Truman and Jack Kennedy didn't have to take a position on abortion. And then we entered a world where you had to take a position on these questions. Now, it, uh, and it was inevitable, really, if you think back on it, I believe, that one party was going to be the pro-choice party and the other party was going to be the anti-abortion party. One party was going to be the party of civil rights and the other party was going to be the party uh, of opposition to civil rights. And one party was going to be the pro-immigration party and the other party was going to be the anti-immigration party. I don't think it was possible to have a world where there was overlap there, where like the Democrats were the abortion party but not the civil rights party, right? Because there were liberal and conservative positions on all these things. It took a while over the course of the 70s, this is an interesting little sub-fact, for the Republicans to become the anti-abortion party. Um, so interesting little anecdote from the book. When Roe v. Wade was decided, which was decided incidentally the same day that Lyndon Johnson died, so it was the second story in every paper that day, but <clears throat> when it was decided, of course the headlines were huge, it was thunderous, everybody knew it was going to be thunderous and have huge, tremendous ramifications, but the New York Times like sidebar story on getting people's reactions to this decision it didn't quote anybody from Alabama. It didn't quote anybody from the Southern Baptist Convention. The people it quoted opposing Roe v. Wade were Terrence Cardinal Cook, as they were called in those days. They put the cardinal in the middle, remember? Yes. Cardinal Cook of New York. 
and, uh, and the woman who was the head of the Bronx Right to Life chapter, who was also, she was presumably Catholic, Italian-American last name. Uh, so it took a while for, for abortion, opposition to abortion, to become a, a Southern, evangelical Southern Baptist issue. But it did, and, uh, and those splits really drove the party also. I, th I should say also the, the economic tensions. You know, the economy of this country from 1945 to 1975 worked. You know, not for every single person, you know, less so obviously for black people. But prosperity was widespread, the middle class grew, people got their dishwashers and their you know, affluent society things, and you know, the GDP grew by five and six percent a year. And then in the 1970s, you have wage stagnation and inflation. And it's not so relevant to a constitutional context of discussing my book, but I think my favorite chapter is the fifth, where I talk about uh, these economic changes that we've gone through since the 70s. And I, I call the chapter uh, More Consumers Than Citizens. And that's what we've become. Not you, of course. <laughs> no. Those we out there have become more consumers than citizens. Uh, so that's what happened. And, and you know, it, it just, it created, it created a, a world in which this overlap just disappeared. Louis Brandeis was determined that we be citizens and not consumers. And under his leadership, the Democratic Party denounced the curse of corporate bigness and yes. the risks that bankers took with other people's money. And that strain of economic populism remained alive among the Democrats through Truman, if not LBJ, are both parties now fighting over the economic populist vote, or is that battle over? Well, uh, you know, Trump has elements of economic populism uh, in his rhetoric and in his platform. The tax plan, I would not say, is, is terribly economically populist. Uh, you know, you, you could say that his tariff negotiations with China kind of represent that. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I believe that once Trump is gone, the Republican Party will probably revert to its more traditional position. I might be wrong about that. I mean, I've been wrong about a lot of stuff, including who was going to win the last election. I was really, really wrong. <laughs> but of course, I was not alone. So. So there's that little source of comfort. But I, I, I kind of think that the Republicans just adopted this because Trump adopted it, uh, whereas the Democrats, of course, are getting more economically populist. You note uh, elsewhere, this was in uh, an uh, interview at Ideas TED, that there are th several rays for hope about the end of polarization. First, a major demographic shift in the US, the growth of the Latino population. Second, the crossroads of the GOP deciding after Trump whether or not to be economically populism and the filibuster. Tell us more about that, and in particular, what that demographic shift uh, might mean for the d Democrats post-Trump. Well, I think it has more ramifications for the Republicans. I mean, because so everybody will remember the famous autopsy after the 2012 election that Reince Priebus ordered for the Republican Party that we have to reach out more to Latinos and we have to and we have to be more accommodating on on issues of immigration and race and uh, that went well <laughs> I mean it actually did for a short period of time it, for, for a year something happened at least right the Senate passed the immigration bill in 2013 with 68 voting aye, and 14 of those 68 were Republicans. Uh, that's very bipartisan for this day and age. So, so that was progress, but then it never got a vote in the House, and it never got a vote in the House because John Boehner knew that if he let it come up for a vote, it would pass, but it would pass with a majority of Democrats and a minority of Republicans, and if he let a bill pass that way, in violation of the Hastert rule, he'd lose his job. So it never came up for a vote. But this will come back around. And um, you, know, you folks know as much about this stuff as I do. But you saw that you know, Georgia was close. Stacey Abrams came close. You saw that Florida was very close in uh, last year's gubernatorial election. You saw that Beto O'Rourke came pretty close in Texas. 
eventually close is going to produce some wins and when the Republicans have to start competing in those states, I think they'll at least moderate on immigration. Uh, it's going to be a hard thing to do because immigration, opposition to immigration, as we're seeing on TV every night, if you watch Fox News, and I recommend that you not, no, I recommend that you do, just like tune in, you know, even if you're on the other side, check it out for 10 or 15 minutes during Hannity or, or Ingram and listen to what they say. It's, it's, a lot of it is about immigration. Uh, but, you know, I think they're going to see that in, in 12 or so years that the math is impossible. Wonderful. These questions are so great, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, let me thank you for them. They are so substantive and smart, and there's so many of them that I'm just trying to put them into categories so I can ask a bunch of them at the same time so we can get as many mm -hmm. on the table. So let me start with uh, this one. Uh, Howard Schultz It will be in Philadelphia this evening at the Free wow. Library talking about his new book, and we have several questions about that. Will Howard Schultz have a substantial impact on the 2020 election? Will it ensure the re-election of Trump? What do you think about third-party candidates entering presidential races? Would it be better if they enter as Republicans or Democrats? Uh, better to enter as, as Republicans or Democrats, yes. Um, <clears throat> uh, Schultz, particularly, I, I don't see how he can do anything except help Trump's re-election chances because for the simple reason that if strip everything else away, the fact that he's pro-choice means that he's going to split the pro-choice vote and the pro-life vote will stay as one. And so <clears throat> Trump gets 40% and at least 40%. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's, he might not do it, but there is a, that is very plausible scenario as to what he might do. The thing is, if people are frustrated by, and I know many people are, uh, and I have my own thoughts about this critique, but I'll leave those out for the time being. But if people are frustrated that the Republicans are too far right and the Democrats are too far left and nobody's representing the middle anymore, the way to fix that, if you think that's a problem, is not to run a presidential candidate. That's like the least effective way to fix that. Uh, th that will do nothing. The way to fix that is to decide that you're going to undertake a long-term project of electing moderates to Congress from, well, from both parties, if that's the way you see things. But, you know, I would say especially from the Republican Party. But, but you know, if you can get a critical mass of, of moderates into Congress, if that's your concern, then that's going to change the way they govern more than running a guy who's guaranteed to lose, and who's guaranteed to just make everybody that much matter at everybody else. Um, we have a whole bunch of questions about- Oh, and by the way, if I just very quickly, Please. I don't think he's gonna run. I, I, th I think he'll drop out. I think he'll see what the polls will obviously show, and I think you know, he'll drop out after his consultants have made a few million dollars from him. <laughs> well, since you, since you mentioned now and in the book the need to encourage moderate Republicans to run, what could do that? Well, I think that takes a dedicated organization that would, that would be you know, focused on, on trying to identify districts where it was possible to elect somebody who we would call moderate. You know? Now, I'm not talking about like Jacob Javits and, and John Hines. They're not going to be around anymore. But <clears throat> here's just very quickly this little story that I tell in the book and that I, I've told everywhere I've talked and everybody laughs, so I hope you laugh too. Although it's, it's not my joke, it's Barney Frank's joke. So Frank was interviewed as he was leaving Congress by New York Magazine, and the guy was asking him about, you know, can't you all just get along and compromise? And he said, yeah, my constituents ask me this question all the time. And I look at them and I say, how much compromising with Michelle Bachman would you have me do? <laughs> and he said, and then my constituents say to that, they say, you mean they're all Michelle Bachman? And I say, no, they're not all Michelle Bachman. Half are Michelle Bachman, and half are terrified of getting a primary from Michelle Bachman. <laughs> and that's funny, but it's really true. And I, I can tell you from other reporting that I've done around Capitol Hill, it's very true. 
Republicans in particular are just terrified of getting a primary from their right. And if you think about, you know, most of these heavily gerrymandered districts down south or in the Midwest, there's four or five people who want to run against the incumbent, state senators, the rich, you know, guy who owns the lumber yard or whatever. And uh, they're all conservative and they're just waiting for this member, of, for the incumbent to cast one rhino, rhino vote, you know, Republican in name only. And boom, they'll run and they'll be financed. The Club for Growth will put money behind them. That's a particular inflection point where polarization really exists. And if somebody can dislodge that, it would do a lot of good. Um, excellent. I mean, not excellent for the country, but <laughs> an excellent answer. OK, here are a whole bunch of questions on polarization. Let's just put some of them on the table. First, could polarization be a factor that could lead to a totalitarian government? On the other side, rapid and hard changes are often done hastily and can be extremely damaging. Does polarization help stop that from happening? And then uh, a practical question about how you would solve it. Uh, you discuss the end of the fairness doctrine in your book, but you do not put anything about reducing ideological polarization on your list of things to fix why. I think you do, in fact, have some solutions, so maybe you could share that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideological polarization per se, I mean, you, you know, you can't ask people to think differently, but, but you can set up incentives for politicians to behave differently a little bit. And so this is one... The, the idea that I just described about trying to create an organization that could recruit and run and finance more moderate Republicans is one such idea. Uh, that changes the incentive. In other words, the incumbent is incentivized not just by fear of a primary from the right, but perhaps by fear of a primary from the center. You know, it's like there's not that many districts where it would work, but there are a few. So uh, my idea is tend to be focused on things like that. What can change the incentive structure that might make them cooperate a little bit more, that might make them compromise a little bit more? Uh, what, what did you add? Totalitarianism. Totali well, you know, why would that occur to anybody? <laughs> hmm. Uh, you know, I think as many flaws as our system has, I think it has enough, God knows, enough built-in choke points. And I still think that both sides have enough respect for those choke points and those traditions that I don't worry that much about that kind of thing. And so maybe there is an extent to which the, dis the, the, the potential for dysfunction that was built into our system also does safeguard us, perhaps, against, against uh, you know, any kind of violent takeover. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we might see. We might see in 2020. I mean, there are, you know, Alex Jones promises a civil war if, um, if certain things happen to the president. I, I don't know how much power Alex Jones has, but they have guns. I know that much. Um, but I think that's not, I don't wake up worrying about that. But the third question related to your, your last point, are the choke points a good thing? Are these the Madisonian cooling mechanisms that ensured the rule of reason over passion? And in that sense, why should we be worried about polarization? Uh, fair question. I mean, you know, I, I had a couple of friends read sections of the book who said, well, you know, maybe polarization isn't, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe, maybe this is how it's meant to be. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there is a, a way in which, I mean, I, I say at one point in the book, I, I don't even want no polarization. Not that that's possible. It's not possible. We should have some polarization. We should have ideologically coherent parties. FDR wanted that, by the way, which did not exist in his time. And, and after he beat Wendell Wilkie, he approached Wilkie and said, you know, Wendell, what we should really have is a liberal party in this country and a conservative party. Why don't you and I form the liberal party and rejigger all this, and then the, my southerners can go up and join the conservative party, and then that way I can pass things, because he was always being stymied by the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. But, you know, he had a war to fight, 
took up a lot of his time and then he got sick and so it never happened. But, but yes, some polarization is desirable and necessary because we disagree about real things and we should fight this out. We should, we should have these fights about real things. But there's an extent to which, and this is going to be in the eye of the beholder, I guess, but there's an extent to which the choke points uh, do make it worse. Uh, and I, I think the, the filibuster, the use of the cloture, which we discussed, is one of those choke points, for example. And the choke points, you argue, are not supposed to lead to heart attacks. They're supposed to allow for a reasoned compromise yes. within the realms of possible agreement. Yes. A bunch of great historical questions. Uh, my College American Government book said the U.S. political parties operated nationally only once every four years, presidential elections. So you had states with conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. What happened since the national party organizations still don't run things? Yeah, well, I think what that means is that like in the 19th century, uh, they didn't really have, I, I mean, Van Buren set up a na national structure, but I guess that was something of an aberration. So if you look, say, for example, at the late 19th century Democratic Party, it was really two entities. It was the Southern racist, you know, apartheid party. And then it was the Northern machine party. It was the party of Boss Tweed. And, the southern wing of the party didn't have any national program. You know, their, their program was Jim Crow, and that, that was it, basically. And the northerners, you know, they, they cared about paving contracts. You know, they, they didn't have any, any particular national policy, policy. They got together every four years to nominate a candidate for president. Because New York was so much bigger than every other state in those days, they tended to be from New York. And, uh, Grover Cleveland, in fact, who was from New York, was the only Democrat who won in that time. The rest was all Republicans because the Republicans had a little bit more coherence and they had more money being the party of Wall Street. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I, I think today we have very national parties, wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you go from the Upper West Side to uh, you know, West, you know Hollywood, to Evanston, Illinois, to certain neighborhoods in Norman, Oklahoma. You're not going to find people that disagree very much, right? Norman's a university town, and I mean where the professors live. You know, <laughs> you're right. The, the, the people are going to think largely the same. You know, they may have slightly different points of emphasis about how they feel about transgender bathrooms or something, but like they're basically going to agree on stuff. And, and conversely, if you go from a small town, uh, um, uh, you know, 50 miles west of here to a small town in southern West Virginia to a small town in the bluest state to a small town in, in the middle of Vermont, you'll find, I think, a lot of Okay, maybe not Vermont. That might be stretching it. <laughs> but certainly New Hampshire, Maine, you know, uh, any kind of very blue state. The rural areas, people will feel like people down in Alabama do. So that, that, that suggests a, a very national, ideologically coherent identity to me. Wonderful. There are so many more questions, but the one rule of these great uh, convenings is that they have to end on time. So this yeah. is uh, an opportunity for some closing thoughts. And uh, here it is. Um, given the difficulty of passing many of your suggestions for reform, some of which would require constitutional amendments, are there one or two of your ideas to enhance the ability to collaborate in Congress that would be easier to pass than others? Well, I, you know, I would just return, I guess, to my revive moderate republicanism idea. It's, um, it doesn't require anybody to pass anything. It just requires people like Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg and other people like that to put money into a program where they identify 20 Republican-held congressional districts where maybe they can elect people who would actually come to Congress and instead of never voting for a compromise measure or a democratic budget, if there's a democratic president who would do so, 
and then, crucially, survive re-election, right? Because that has to happen. And, and that's, that's a big thing. Like, I write a lot in the book about Grover Norquist and his tax pledge. And it's a very important source of polarization. We didn't get to it here today, fine, but you can read about it in chapter six. But <clears throat> someday, it'll take for some Republicans to compromise, agree that a Democratic president should get a tax increase of some kind, and then they have to survive re-election. And then, then people can, the smoke can clear a little bit, and there can be a little bit more cooperation. And um, <clears throat> it doesn't take many people. You know, if you have 435 people, 15 is a voting block. 15's a real block. You know, if you have, you know, 15 Republicans voting with 220 Democrats to pass something, that's bipartisan by today's standards. Or the opposite, too. You know, 220 Republicans and 15 Democrats. That's bipartisan by today's standards. And so that's, that's a starting place. Get some more moderates of both parties, but I think the Republicans have gone off farther than the Democrats have, in my personal view. So it's more important uh, thing for the Republican Party, but, but for both parties. If you can find ways to elect more people who are from the center. And by the way, the Democrats did that this time. I mean, AOC and, and is the only one who like, gets a ton of press. So you'd think that the Democrats have, have, have formed like Das Kapital reading groups. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually elected more people who joined the New Democratic Caucus and the Blue Dog Caucus than joined the Progressive Caucus. Because they elect people from these purple districts, you know, who like, like Connor Lamb in Western Pennsylvania. There are a lot of Connor Lambs. We need some Republican Connor Lambs. Ladies and gentlemen, please meet Michael Tomaski outside and thank him for casting light on American politics. Thanks. Today's episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.